Hello and welcome to the Fire Protection Association's Assembly Point podcast. Uh, I'm John O'Neill, I'm Managing Director of the Fire Protection Association and I'm delighted to be involved in my first episode of this podcast. It's been running, as many of you know, since the beginning of the year. I'll be your host for this episode and I'll be joined by three special guests to discuss our topic today. With all of our guests attending the fire safety event, this podcast will examine its key themes and how the industry aims to achieve the highest standards of fire safety management. Our panel will discuss the implications of the Building Fire Safety Bill and the principles behind the new legislation. The podcast will also cover the lack of support for those affected by the cladding crisis, how vulnerable people will be protected and whether the changes will have a true effect in preventing another serious fire from the UK's building stock. I'm delighted to be joined by our three guests who are uniquely placed to offer valuable insights into the discussion. They are Alan Meek, who is Director, Group SCS, Niall Rowan, who is Technical and Regulatory Affairs Officer of the ASFP, and Russ Timpson, who is the founder of the Tall Buildings Safety Network. Firstly, thank you for the time to speak with me today. I'd like to open, if I can, with a question to all of you. And that is, with the Building Safety Bill in the process of being passed into law, what do you see as the main implications of the new and imminent legislation? And in your specific areas of fire safety, how will this impact? Perhaps we could start with Alan, move to Niall, and then finish with Russ. Great. Thanks, John. Um, I have to say it was great to um, actually be at the exhibition and see people out and about in, in the flesh again. It was a really encouraging sight, so I really enjoyed the last few days. Um, regarding the Building Safety Bill, overall, I think it's a good framework and addresses the major issues from planning and approval to occupation. I have some reservations about how we'll address competence, and I'm sure we'll pick those up later in the conversation. Uh, I think the biggest implication and concern to me is how we'll manage the process of even assessing existing buildings, let alone bringing them up to standard and the time and resources needed to achieve that. I mean, in my industry, smoke patrol is a very small specialism and such gets very little care and attention. In my experience, I'd say that in high-rise residential buildings, probably 10% of owners don't even know they have it. Probably less than 20% are properly maintained and tested, and 70% are not are not being tested and maintained by competent contractors. It's very common to bundle the maintenance in with a fire alarm or the HVAC, and it's usually the case they don't understand how the system works. So perform a cursory um, test and sign off the system every year. And I think in, in residential, it's particularly problematic because there's nobody available to carry out the weekly test to make sure it works, as you would in a fire alarm in a in an office building, for example. Um, you might not have picked it up, in the, but in the Grenfell inquiry, uh, the TMO maintenance chap said that he tested the system every week, but he tested the same floor every week, which would obviously not pick up any problems on other floors. So I don't really know about other industries, but there just isn't the capacity to inspect and assess the existing buildings within a reasonable time frame and, and the costs for rectification are likely to be really considerable as well. Thank you very much, Alan. I mean, Niall, I'm sure that uh, that uh, the challenges for the passive uh, fire protection industry are probably even greater than they are for smoke control. I, I say they're probably about even actually, but for the greatest implication for me, the single greatest implication is the huge learning curve and change for the industry. And when I say industry, I mean those from developers, from those designing buildings, for principal contractors, subcontractors, right through to the to the end users. There'll be a huge amount of change, a huge amount of knowledge required, 
And as we've seen from James Julius Hackett's uh, report on the review of building regulations, competence is a big issue. And Alan did touch on that. We've got competence requirements for three new duty holders. But competency frameworks will be being developed by all those players in, in the industry, all sectors. And that's a massive amount of work to do. Uh, in terms of passive fire protection, uh, as well as the competence of installers, there is in the building safety bill powers by the Secretary of State to introduce special requirements for safety critical products. And when you look at those, uh, those requirements, they're quite close to what we would know as third party certification of products which is something the ASFP and I know the FPA and other associations have been pushing for for a while. Whether it looks exactly the same, we're still to find out. And what exactly is a safety critical product, we're still to find that out as well. But we welcome that, the, the, the use of third party certification or something very like it for passive fire protection products. Thank you, Niall, as ever insightful. Uh, Russ, you know, with your specialist interest in tall buildings how do you think that uh, the, the 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 bill's shaping up well to be to be frank uh, uh, john it's it's obviously the government's attempt to shut the door after the horse has bolted or at least prevent any more horses bolting uh, and i think it's it's two sides of a coin we have the obviously the very challenging elements uh, or implications of the bill uh, and then i do see some opportunities uh, as well uh, but i think the challenge is um the, the new uh, procedures and process and um, uh, system uh, represents uh, quite a large increase in administration and checks and auditing, all of which is going to cost money and is going to take time. Uh, and this is against the backdrop of an industry that is uh, quintessentially driven by cost. Um, so I think there's there's two issues. There's going to have to be some kind of re-evaluation of how we build buildings um, and the value that they represent. Um, and the construction industry is going to have to respond to that. And ultimately, there is going to be this question mark of who's going to pay for all of these additional costs that are coming down the track with all of these uh, additional layers. Um, we, we can talk about the golden thread and, and the development of safety cases for tall buildings or higher risk buildings. Uh, and all of this is going to be additional cost. And I've seen various estimates um, between sort of 5 and 10% of additional cost. Uh, so it's an interesting question is who's going to pick up the bill uh, for these costs, for not only for legacy buildings, but for new builds as well. But, you know, on a positive note, because, um, I, I, you know, I'd like to think that we can be, we can look at this as an opportunity as well. Um, you know, the, the future of construction will include a lot more emphasis on BIM and digitization of lots of the processes so I'm hoping that the Building Safety Bill will usher in uh, a new uh, opportunity to look at some of the efficiencies and some of the safety improvements that can be that can be garnered through uh, through through this opportunity. Um, but I think the big question in terms of implication is we have to look at construction and buildings uh, in a far more resilient and sustainable way. Um, current building regulations in England and Wales uh, and, and the rest of the UK, you know, they are predicated on life safety only. Um, and I know because I teach tall building fire safety management is that, you know, many fire engineering buildings um, 
you know, which pass their their commissioning tests uh, simply aren't able to withstand the rigours of wear and tear for very long before they become defective. Um, and I know from certainly from buildings in London that uh, many fire engineered buildings, you know, even 10 years on are are woefully degraded because of wear and tear and a lack of understanding of the occupants and the use. So I, I hope that some of those things are going to be addressed um, and that we can we can not only uh, reverse some of the downward trend of uh, construction safety uh, and building safety, but also really grasp some of the opportunities that are going to come with it to to automate some of the process in line with the sort of the, the BIM revolution. Really interesting responses from all three of you. Thanks very much. And, and I'd like to come back to the, the, the bureaucracy and the competence issues uh, a, a little later on. Um, but I'd like to, Russ, I'd like to stay with you uh, to begin with, just to explore tall buildings in more detail, as, as we know that is the focus of the new legislation. Uh, and we'll come on to discuss whether the, the primary focus for, on tall buildings is right. But my question initially is, will, in your view, the new legislation actually fix the problems that we know are currently present in tall buildings? With the, the safety cases that are now going to have to be developed um, for higher risk buildings, there's going to have to be far more scrutiny of some of the existing systems in the building. Um, and of course, now we are now considering the external envelope of the building in far more detail than we've ever done hitherto. And it's always, I'm afraid, been a bit of a, um, a grey area. And I, I hope that that's now being clarified. What we do know about tall buildings is that we are going to build far more tall buildings around the world. Uh, that's uh, indisputable. Um, you know, many buildings have been built since the terrible tragedy of 9-11. Um, so uh, even when really bad things happen, it doesn't stop the construction of tall buildings. And we know that there's going to be massive changes going forward with modern methods of construction, uh, tall timber, green walls, green roofs, etc. So there's lots of change and complexity coming uh, coming down 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 the road, and I think what we what we will need to do is is really consider the differences uh, that tall buildings represent to everybody in the industry. Uh, I'm really pleased that we've now jettisoned this mantra of uh, high rise does not mean high risk, um, and, and and adherence to statistics which tell a story which I don't think portrays the reality of the current exposure out out there in the UK within within tall buildings. High-rise buildings, tall buildings have unique features um, and they have to be thoroughly understood by the people that are designing them and building them and adding components onto them. And I think some of those unique features now uh, will, will get far greater scrutiny than they have done before. But I think the reality, John, is that we know that we've got a, a massive legacy issue now to address um, and, you know, uh, aluminium composite panels, high pressure laminates. These are only some small examples of some of the materials that have been used on buildings. And, uh, you know, we have to go back and re-examine now the, the adequacy and the suitability of those types of products used on tall buildings uh, in the light of, you know, the many high rise fires that are, are taking place around the world. And uh, uh, at the time of this particular podcast, you know, in the, in the, in, only in the last 10 days now, we've had uh, a number of full height fires in, in Milan, in, uh, in Italy and in China uh, and uh, a, a balcony fire in Norway. So um, these fires are, are not, uh, 
you know, they're not uncommon uh, and they are happening around the world. And uh, I think that it's it's incumbent upon us to, to, to look at those and, and, and really share the details of those um, for the existing building stock. And, and then also go on to think about how we're going to build new buildings going forward. As you, you touched upon several times within that answer, you know, the, the, the external envelope or the, or the cladding is a key focus within the overall debate over fire safety. And obviously, you know, the, the legislation does attempt to tackle this issue. Now, from your perspective, does the new uh, legislation go far enough in addressing the cladding problem? And if not, what in your view needs to be done? Um, no, it doesn't. There are two, two main areas of concern. The one that is probably most well-known in the general public is what is ubiquitously called the cladding crisis. At the end of the day, leaseholders may still be liable for costs, remediation costs of cladding. The government has pumped a lot of money in, £5 billion is a figure that's mentioned. Some people say that's not enough. Uh, but in the end of the day, there will be a, a, a safety charge applied to leaseholders, and there's no reason why not that cladding remediation costs are not added to that. There is some wording in the in the building safety bill about appropriate person has to try and investigate all other avenues, but that's not really much of a, much help if you live in one of these properties and and you want to sell it or you can't get a valuation on it. Um, so that's not very satisfactory, and that's 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 something that's 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 not gone away. The other issue is um, in response to, for example, the Fire Safety Act and the external wall, which has been brought into the remit of the fire safety order. So we need, uh, as part of a fire risk assessment, to evaluate flat front doors and external walls. And there simply aren't enough trained fire risk assessors to do this. And it's not an easy job. Apart from the ground floor, how do you inspect all the cladding or a large percentage of the cladding or cladding at higher level and what about cavity barriers so i think that's kind of a, a problem that's been thrown at the fire risk assessor industry with you sort this out and i'm not sure they can thanks now and, and and alan you know i know it's not your specific area of expertise but as far as the cladding issue is concerned do you think that the bill does what it says on the tin as far as cladding is concerned I I, uh, I agree with Niall. I think you know the leaseholders are in a in a terrible position, and I think that there should have been more money um, you know set aside for this. Uh, and as, as Niall said, the building safety cases will will put a huge workload on on every trade really if we're trying to um, uh, you know assess every building because you know this just isn't the the expertise out there available, and I just can't. Imagine what sort of time scale this this is likely to be achieved in. No, I, I think your your concerns are reflected by the entire fire safety industry, which uh, which doesn't seem to have been desperately well consulted on uh, some of the finer aspects of this bill. Russ, uh, from, from you, uh, from your perspective, you, you brought up the Milan fire, particularly, you know, uh, cladding wise. It, it, have we gone far enough with this bill? Well, I think we really, you know, there is some there is some fundamental questions that go back to a kind of uh, a, a culture where we were we were 
using inherently confusing documents, uh, you know, the the term limited combustibility and all those other terms. It, it's true that there's uh, there's been a, a clamour to build tall buildings and then to make them as thermally efficient as possible, be that in cold countries to keep them warm or in hot countries to keep them cold. Um, and there's been any number of products that have been developed and are being used um, and as usual, you know, the testing regime and the, the experience lags behind that. So there are, you know, significant questions that need to be asked about what, uh, what types of things that we're going to be using on buildings going forward. Um, and there's that trade-off, isn't there, about whether we go for environmental um, carbon reducing type performance when there is potentially a fire risk associated with it. And finding the happy medium is, 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 is an extremely difficult uh, um, challenge. Um, so we, I think we are going to reach a point because safety is not binary. You know, it's, it, it's, it's not binary. There's, there's always going to be elements of risk. Uh, and, and taking Niall's point, you know, one of the issues is balconies. Now, we can build uh, what we could call fireproof balconies. But what happens when people start to put all kinds of paraphernalia and junk and fire load onto a balcony? Um, so I think that the question of facade is, is, is one where it needs to be addressed uh, on a sort of a global debate and discussion. Uh, and we need to find those makeups and systems where we can reduce the risk to as low as reasonably practicable. Um, um, and hopefully there is there are the systems out there and there are the testing regimes that go with it because currently there's a whole raft of testing regimes around the world producing slightly different results, which again is confusing to the end user, the architect and the designer. They want clarity from us, the fire professionals, so that they, uh, so that they can do their job in, in, in the sort of the comfort that, they are, that they're, they're building with correct materials because uh, clearly we haven't got that right hitherto and uh, we need to address it. And I know from an FPA perspective, Jim, Jim Glocking's concern about the toxicity of some of the, uh, the materials when they catch fire is also very material to that discussion. Thank you all for your responses to that question. And, and as you quite rightly point out, we are very concerned about toxicity and we do think that the 8414 test needs to be refined. And I think we, well, we, we put our evidence to the British Standards Committee. Sadly, they weren't um, as supportive um, as, as we would have thought they would have been. And uh, we are now looking at alternatives and further announcements will come along those lines in the new year. And, you know, as I think you all probably know, the FBA's view on this, that we, we think that cladding removal should have been fully funded by central government regardless of the height of the building. Uh, we you know, put leaseholders to have been landed in the situation that they're in, not of their own making and facing uncertainty over funding while the value permits is completely unacceptable. It's, it's scandalous, really. Anyway, what I want to do now is to move on, take a slightly broader look at the focus of the legislation, if I can. We've, we've, we've talked about tall buildings being prioritised in this legislation, but my question to you, is this, a right, is this the right approach? Will it mean that other vulnerable buildings and residents occupy them continue to be at risk? I'm, I'm obviously keen to get the entire panel's view on this point. So, Alan, can I, can I start with you and then I'll move on to Russ and then, and then Niall? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I, I don't really know enough about the statistics to say whether statistically this is the right move. I suspect... Um, it, it, it probably is, um, you know, they ha and they have to start somewhere. Um, so I, I think um, overall, it's probably a, a good starting point. 
I don't understand why hotels aren't included in there. That seems a little bit odd. Um, I think when I started in the industry, there used to be a, a lot of talk about large fires in nightclubs and stadia, etc. But um, you know, we seem to have somehow addressed those the issues that lo- led to those. And high rise residential seems to be a reasonable reasonable priority to me. Thank you for that, Alan. Russ, from your you you touched on this earlier on. Actually, do you think we've got the balance right? Is is is, is should we be just focusing on on the taller buildings, or, or are there the higher risk? Buildings that, uh, that that aren't built at heights that we should be should be bringing into this legislation immediately. Well, I think if you ask the legislators, that they said that you know there's only so there's only so much that the system can uh, can cope with at any one particular time, um, and you know I think the uh, without going into details, the arbitrary eighteen meter rule is is I still haven't had a, 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 anyone explain to me where that number comes from to an adequate level, but nevertheless. I suppose you could make an argument that we have to start somewhere and we have to address this. But I mean, for me, the whole thrust of changing from the old Fire Precautions Act, where we had obviously designated premises, uh, was that, you know, the people that generate the risk uh, should own the risk and resolve the risk. And that was the, that was the whole intent of, of, of that change. Um, and so therefore, you should have the people that are, uh, it should be I- irrelevant the the dimensions of the building and in terms of it being addressed but um we now know that that uh, that, that particular approach was you know I, i'm not quite sure that we uh the uk fire and the occupants and and the whole uh, system was ready for that uh, change in sort of risk approach because clearly there have been people that have uh, that have followed the process and those who who clearly haven't and have and have gone off um if we'd have had strict stricter control uh, with regards to building regulations and uh, building regulations that are up to date, then it may have been the case that we uh, we could have kept up with it. But I think um, I think that let's let's start with the building safety bill. Um, its current focus is fire safety and particularly fire spread is the is the is the thrust of the building safety bill and structural safety and, and it's only addressing the premises that we've discussed. Um, and I think that the those in charge, I hope, and the informal conversations I've had is that let's see how it goes and, and then that scope will increase. So in that spirit, I suppose it's down to all of us to make a success of this and then hopefully we can bring those other buildings into scope um, as soon as we can, as I say, get the system going, get up and running, get it really efficient um, and then bring and then widen the scope and bring the other buildings in because they're... Uh, um, you know they're going to be they're going to be waiting to see if we can make a success of this, and it's it, it is incumbent upon us to try and make a success of it because because if not, you know we're going to be going round and round again, and, and nobody wants that. It's interesting. Those are two answers I actually wasn't quite expecting. I must admit. I mean, from, from, from the FBA's perspective, we, we we've been very sceptical about height being the only uh, the only factor in risk for some time. What's the ASFP's view of of what high risk building should be? And should those higher-risk buildings be included in this new legislation? Well, it's very straightforward, really. I mean, it's very easy to say, as as Russ has just said, well, we have to start somewhere, and height is is one arbiter, and it's easily measurable, though you wouldn't believe it from all the arguments about what is a story height, etc. But there are an awful lot of other buildings out there it, it, that are possibly equally as dangerous, or maybe that some of the higher buildings aren't as dangerous. This fixation on height and 18 metres. When you think about something like the Beechmere Care Home, that wasn't high rise. 
And despite early intervention of the fire service, they couldn't put the building out and they lost the whole building or nearly the whole building. Unfortunately, they decided to decant the residents very early on. If that fire had happened at three o'clock in the morning, I think you might, we might not be talking about tall buildings. We might be talking about modern methods of construction or hospitals where you need progressive horizontal evacuation or factories where, which might be full of flammable materials or have risky procedures. So while I accept Russ's view, we have to start somewhere and get that system working. My concern is that the fixation will be on high-risk residential buildings and mainly high-rise to the detriment of stopping looking at other areas where we know there are some issues occurring. And I have a feeling that the FPA will probably agree with that. To, to us, of course, you know, we, we, do, we do think that there are other buildings, huge amount of other buildings in scope, which we would define as higher risk. And, and I do think that there is some danger in us having two systems where one is, is just set up for height and the other one where we've got high risk buildings, which essentially are out of scope. So I think we've got to find some way of, of bringing those high risk buildings in very, very quickly indeed. And this was touched on earlier on. You know, there's the issue about the new system being quite bureaucratic. Um, there's an issue about competency that's been brought up by, by all of you as, as, as panellists about you know, where, where, where we're going to get the, the, the competent risk assessors, where we're going to get the competent enforcers um, to actually look at, uh, through the new system. I mean, from, from, from your perspective, Alan, you know, do you see that there's a, a pool of competence out there or, or are we going to have a real crisis with actually a new system which we, which we almost effectively unable to police? hundred percent. We we have a massive issue with competence. I, I sat on working group two with um, with Niall and got increasingly frustrated at the uh, the focus on operator level sort of CSCS card. Um, you know, we were we were often given the analogy of a of a driving license that anybody can stop anyone on site and check that they're 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 competent to drive the vehicle. But it, it that doesn't help if the vehicle they're driving is defective or the wrong vehicle. You know, so. Um, you know, we were were lobbying a lot of us for third party certification, and um, and the message just didn't seem to get through. I think until we find some way of bringing organisations up to speed, we're going to have this problem. I mean, for example, with with the Smoke Control Association, I mean, after Grenfell, we there was no scheme in place. It's a very small industry. I mean, the SCA probably has less than fifty members, so it's really hard to get any commercial sort of um, qualifications company or training body involved because there's just not enough um, bodies there to make it viable um, but we got a, a third party certification scheme up and running and made it mandatory for members and had that up and running within two years and I think you know that could be um, you know could be adopted more widely and, and I don't understand why it, why it hasn't been or isn't doesn't seem to be on the radar well again it'd be no surprise to any of you I know that uh, I'm, a, I'm a massive supporter of third party certification and I think it's uh, an easy way for end users to be able to uh, to to essentially know that they are using a competent contractor or a competent designer or a competent maintenance company. Russ, you, you have brought up the issue about, about competence. From your perspective, do you think that there is enough expertise within the regulators um, at the moment to be able to cope with the new system? 
Well, I'm, I'm a chartered fire engineer, uh, one of the people signing the current uh, external wall survey forms. And I know that uh, there are two issues there. One is actually the, the shortage of, uh, of suitable people to do that, chartered engineers. And I know that the, the rules have changed recently to allow more people to do that. Uh, and then there's the issue of whether or not they can be insured, etc. Um, I think there's no there's no question that um, the sort of build and forget culture that we've had, where um, the uh, fire systems inside buildings have really, in some cases, uh, this is a sweeping generalisation. I, I know that, but but in some cases they've been um, not maintained correctly, uh, and that's and that's largely because uh, it's been driven by cost. Um, and so I don't think we've had the proportionate growth in the competency pool that we should have had. Um, and, and now we've got to obviously redress that. Um, so I'm hoping that with apprenticeship schemes and other schemes uh, and the safety case and, and, you know, the building safety bill, uh, whilst, you know, the intent is there, that should drive, I'm hoping, the uh, the recruitment and training of, of of suitable numbers of people to address all of the work and tasks that has got to be done. Um, then, of course, that the, the, then asks the question about compliance, um, and we we wait to see whether the, the new building safety regulator will uh, uh, how that's going to perform and how it's going to check on these particular issues. Um, one of the issues with competence, of course, is that we can't we can't and shouldn't have people operating in silos. You know, where we have somebody who's fitting fire retardant glazing, uh, who's utterly unaware of the difference between a firefighting lift and uh, and a normal uh, passenger lift, or doesn't know the difference between a wet riser and a dry riser. I think there's there's a there's a broader base of understanding of of other systems and and other trades and and how they contribute. I think that's a that's also a very valid issue, in my opinion, John. Thanks, Ross. I mean, you know, it's it's not forget it's four and a quarter years since the Grenfell tragedy. It's three years since Dame Judith Hackett told us that there was a real problem with competence in the industry. If we can't sort ourselves out within this sort of time scale, I really worry for the future, I must admit. But anyway, I shall leave that out there a minute. Let's focus a little bit on fire protection systems, uh, specifically in light of these policy changes. Alan, in your expertise of smoke control, and of course these systems are vitally important in maximising safety in high-rise buildings, can you tell us a little bit about where the legislation currently mandates implementation and the maintenance of these systems? and where you see there's further work for, for policy focus. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, the, the, the industry is largely focused on escape routes from tall buildings, um, as it happens, um, and also underground car parks are the two sort of biggest markets. Um, and any sort of buildings over sort of 11 metres, need the, the escape routes need to be protected in residential and for um, firefighting protection in, um, in um, non-residential buildings. Um, they are mandated and there's there are methods of complying with the building regulations contained within ADB, but they're largely ignored in preference for fire engineered solutions, um, mainly done on the on the basis of cost and, and particularly to provide buildings with extended single direction travel distances over those allowed within ADB. Um, and this is routinely done now. We get, you know, state travel distances up to 30 metres are, are reasonably common. Or you know, instead of the um, seven point five within ADB, the, the issue the issue with this, I think, is that um, 
you know, following ADB guidance is simple and it's quite hard to get it wrong because it's fairly basic and, and, and prescriptive. Um, but also it's easy to spot when somebody's got it wrong for an assessor or, you know, a, a building control officer. You know, when, when we go into fire engineered systems, they're, they're more difficult um, both for the vendor to um, to select and, and design, um, but then they're really difficult to spot for uh, by an approving authority if it's something that's wrong within a CFD model, for example, because CFD modeling is is sort of a, the new god almost, and and it's routinely used and possibly overused on on um, on buildings that probably don't warrant um, a fire engineered solution, but it's become routine and it's it's the way it's done. I mean. I, it's not quite the same thing, but it's a, you know liken it a little bit to the desktop studies with cladding that we saw, where where it can just get taken too far, um, and it's kind of compounded with it coming back to the competence with uh, with something like smoke control, where where there's no qualification for a smoke control designer, um, and anybody can call himself a smoke control designer. So um, you know it is a real issue, and it and it kind of we end up coming back to the competence thing in the short term unless we get third party. Um, certification. Uh, I think it, it's going to be very difficult to to control this, um, and I, I, I'm not sure what the answer is. Whether it's it's to um, reduce the use of fire engineered systems, um, certainly on w- where they're allowing single stair buildings, which is you know is a result of um, the extended travel distances, is to have less staircases. Um, maybe we should limit the uh, the fire engineered um, route uh, a little more and be a push a little bit more down the prescriptive route and as i say have more more emphasis on competence of designers and and uh, implementers of systems well russ you're a former firefighter but you're also a fire engineer so this would fall straight into your lap i think but drawing from your experience how important do you think it is that certain fire protection and prevention systems um, are mandated and how important is their ongoing maintenance and it'd be really useful, actually, if you could remind our listeners the difference they actually make when a fire occurs. So, yeah, if you're not an ex-firefighter or current firefighter, just put yourself in the, the boots of a firefighter turning up at a tall building um, at three o'clock in the morning. It's pitch black. You've been told that there's a fire in the building. Um, you enter the building uh, and it's, a, it's from your control centre. You've been told it's a fire engineered building and that it has a smoke control solution and it has other features in there. That's one building of probably several hundred buildings on their patch. So they're never going to have an intimate knowledge of the building. And really, the building has to be autonomous. It has to work. Uh, and I think I've seen uh, you know, the, dra- the early draft of Treble 9-1, the revision, where it's saying now actually taking away the manual uh, the manual controls in buildings. It's, it's, it's been a long-standing issue of mine, the, the lack of understanding of the yellow call points in high-rise buildings um, and what they're used for in terms of AOV overrides um, um, and, and just the complete lack of, of, of anybody understanding what they're for and how they would be used. But what I would say is is if, 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 the, uh, if the systems are correctly designed, correctly installed, correctly commissioned and correctly maintained, uh, they can make the firefighters' job uh, much, much easier if they if they are uh, if they do the job that they're designed to do. Now, the, the the paradox of this is that if you make the systems very complex, and I'm thinking about cause and effect interfaces, uh, etc., 
then one of the issues is when they degrade over time through wear and tear, then um, uh, that 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 building just may not be sustainable. I, 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 we had a very frank discussion recently on a recent podcast. I took part of, which was a number of fire engineers, and there was kind of some soul searching from some of them, some of them quite senior in the industry, saying actually. I know several fire strategies that I've written, which are far too complex to be sustainable over the medium to long term, um, um, which is a very interesting perspective on, on, on this particular question that you've asked me, John. Um, but they, they, they can and would do make a firefighter's job a lot easier. You know, as a firefighter, what you want to do is get in, locate the fire, establish who's at risk, uh, and then carry out firefighting and, and obviously rescues. If you've got to then start thinking about, do I press button A or press button B? How does this work? Uh, how, do I, how do I understand what happens if I do this? Then, 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 then it's obviously uh, more complex. But certainly, you know, high-rise buildings are complex, are complex structures relatively uh, or can be complex. And, um, but if, if the fire systems are designed correctly, uh, installed and commissioned and, and above all maintained, one of the things I teach on our tall building fire safety management courses is how to construct what we call a degraded systems matrix. So it gets the people who are managing the buildings to ask themselves the questions, what do you do if the firefighter lift is not working? What do you do if your smoke control system is impeded? What do you do if um, you've got, um, for, for, for whatever reason, the, the, the dry riser is not available or your hydrant system goes down? So these are all kinds of very foreseeable uh, problems that can come along. And unfortunately, most of the time, those kind of questions don't get addressed until it comes to light. And in some cases, they don't come to light, you know, many months after the system has, 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 has fallen over or is not working correctly. Um, so my, my short answer, John, sorry, that was a, that was a lot of words, is that, that, that of course, they can make the firefighter's job uh, easier uh, to do so that they can do a great job. But that with that, they have to be installed correctly, commissioned correctly, and they have to be maintained. Because if they're not maintained, uh, I would say they're a hindrance and uh, they make it worse. Thanks, Russ. It, it's, it's really, really helpful to gain the perspective of those who've had to deal with the immediate consequence of serious fires. I think um, some of us in the industry um, can, can sit in our ivory towers and pontificate. And we don't actually uh, think about what's happening on the ground. Um, it's, of course, those devastating consequences of, that, that we actually, as an industry, exist to prevent. Uh, and we need to be supported by legislation to force a change and, and to mandate certain standards. And, and, and let's hope this legislation will do exactly um, what, what it's intending to do there and, and, and make sure that we have got safer buildings going forward. But my final question to all of you today reflects on this point a little bit. Do we think that the pace of change agreed will have a real true effect in preventing a serious fire in the built environment? And I say that, you know, with, with COP26 on the horizon, with the pressure that there'll be on sustainability, um, on, on, on quicker, cheaper um, uh, and easier, easier construction. Uh, Niall, can I start with you? Yes, thanks, John. Um, in short, in terms of high-rise, high-risk type buildings and cladding, then yes, it's a bit like the Herald of Free Enterprise when the ferry, when it turned over uh, at Zeebrugge Harbour, immediately people look at the, what happened and they'll address it very quickly. I don't see that happening. Will it stop um, another serious fire in housing stock? 
I don't think so until the scope of what we call in-scope buildings increases. We've had a number of near misses. I mentioned Beechmere Court earlier, the care home, but there's also the Hamptons at Worcester Park and a number of other fires where we've had either total losses or severe fires, fortunately happening at more convenient times of the day. And I think we might see something else there, first of all. And while we're just obsessed with high risk or high rise or whatever combination of that, we kind of take our eye off the ball of other types of buildings that may cause a, cause a problem. Thanks, Noel. Alan, for you, is the pace of change quick enough? I, th I think it's um, it's difficult to see. how It's taken a long time to get where we are, but from here on, once we start trying to implement it, it's difficult to see how you could do it any quicker because we just have a, a, a massive capacity issue. So um, will it prevent another fire? I mean, there's there's... There's plenty, probably plenty more Grenfell Towers out there, so it's just a, a case of chance, really, whether it does or not. Um, it's, it's moving in the right direction, but uh, it's, it has taken a long time to get where we are, and uh, and it's going to take a long, long time before we, we're at the end of the process. So I think, you know, who knows is the answer from me, unfortunately. So, Russ, as a, as a G7 country, uh is it acceptable that we just don't have the capacity to move any quicker? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's a tough question, uh, John. Uh, certainly your comment about COP26, I think, you know, all of what we've discussed today is all about reaction to the tragedy at Grenfell Tower. Um, but as, as we look forward to the next 10 or 15 years, it's absolutely clear in my mind that we're going to be building low-carbon buildings and we're going to be building them out of wood. Um, and they're going to come in different shapes and formats. So they're going to be you know, tall timber buildings, modular construction, but it's going to be timber for all of the environmental uh, benefits that comes with building with timber. Uh, we're probably going to be covering those buildings in green walls and, and, and roofs, which will be covered in vines and trees and plants and shrubs. And what happens when they dry out? Um, we're also probably going to be covering the buildings in photovoltaic cells. Uh, and we're probably going to fill the car parks underneath with electric vehicles, with electric batteries. Uh, and my appeal to, to colleagues, um, uh, and if you'll forgive me for a blatant plug for our, for our conference next year, our tall building fire safety conference, my, my appeal to colleagues is, yes, we're obsessed at the moment with reacting to Grenfell, but for goodness sake, let's look forward because there's some big challenges coming down the track. And, and if we're not careful, we're going to be reactive again. Um, and, and I think we have to start asking some serious questions about what if and how are we addressing some of the massive changes that are coming down uh, with, with the way people are going to live and work in the future uh, and the fire safety challenges that that's going to generate. So, uh, yes, we have to be reactive to Grenfell. We have to try and address the issues, but we also need to think about what's coming down. Otherwise, there will be a tragedy uh, uh, in the future caused by one of these new uh, elements. And uh, we'll be asked the question, why didn't you do something about it? Really insightful answers again from all three of you. And, and, and thank you very much. You know, to me, why on earth are we in a situation where we even think it's vaguely acceptable that we could have vulnerable people dying in large numbers in a fire in the future because we haven't fixed the system which was broken in Grenfell? I'd like to thank you all for uh, taking part today. Um, I hope you've enjoyed today's conversation. Please uh, make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and uh, hit the subscribe button, uh, leave us a review. 
and I look forward to uh, catching up with you all again soon. Thank you.